For those who might not be familiar with the the jobs to be done framework, the basic premise is that people hire products to fulfill jobs for them. So in the morning, when I wake up, I have a job of waking up as efficiently as possible. And I can either hire a cup of coffee to perform that job for me, or I could hire a green juice. So you really shift the way that you think about competition and how people explore solutions to their problems, which is very much so rooted in acute pain points or problems that they have, as opposed to it being, you know, this generalizable demographic that will always drink coffee in the mornings. And welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. I'm Austin, your host. I'm joined today by an awesome guest, Cambria Davies. I used to work with her at HubSpot. Now she's a product manager at Row, which is a startup that's a patient-driven telehealth company. Previously at HubSpot, she was leading the service hub. And fun fact, she actually started as a growth marketing intern. Very fast ascent in her career. On the side, she's the co-founder of a company called Longevity Functional Foods, which she runs with her family. And beyond that, she's a global citizen. She has passports in the USA, UK, and Ireland. And during her time at HubSpot, she was living all over the world, traveling, meeting lots of cool people. So Cambria, we've got a lot of awesome stuff to talk about. About today with regards to launching and growing a product, which you have a lot of experience with. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you here. Awesome to be here, Austin. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So let's start out by talking about Roe. Quite interesting timing to be joining a telehealth company, which how long have you been there now? So I started March 16th. So it's about seven weeks now. Yeah. And I can imagine that you've seen a lot of change over that time. I think I was recently reading that telehealth was up 53% year over year prior to COVID-19. So on top of already a uh, rapid growth curve, now you have an entire global pandemic, which I can imagine is really impacting the stuff that you all are doing. And I saw that you actually launched a coronavirus telehealth assessment back on March 4th. So very early where people can kind of go on and answer some questions remotely and start to determine whether they are at risk or have coronavirus. What's it been like working there during this time? It has been very busy, uh, to say the least. It's been challenging, obviously, starting completely remotely in a company during a global pandemic. But it's also been probably one of the best times to join a, a telehealth company right now at frankly, an industry-defining point in its history. You know, the future of medicine, of healthcare, is really being defined and changed right now. So it was really cool to, to see also the response that Roe has taken to really, uh, like, rising to that occasion, right? So we launched, as you mentioned, the online telehealth assessment on, on March 4th with really no kind of business goals or tacit business goals attached to that. It was mm -hmm. mostly to, to help people, right? Um, kind of feeling this responsibility, this obligation in telehealth to help unburden the healthcare system. You know, people that are, are low risk shouldn't be going into hospitals or a doctor's office. 
And so what we offer now is, is basically a triage service. Uh, so you'll answer a series of questions about symptoms that you're experiencing, travel history, exposure, uh, and then the system will connect you with a healthcare provider for a free consultation if you are uh, indeed at risk. Uh, and then the provider will make recommendations but can't diagnose or, or test for, for COVID-19, and no one has to pay for, for any part of, of that process. We've partnered with yeah. Uber and Fiverr, Postmates, helping get gig economy, kind of essential workers, access to, to the service as well. So, you know, in, in that respect, it's been really interesting to see kind of the initial demand and, and response to that uh, assessment and the speed at which we we're able to, to deliver that to people. Uh, we built that in a weekend. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it feels certainly like this is a time of great innovation coming out of necessity. I mean, you all are powering millions of digital healthcare visits. And importantly, I I noticed from going through your product that 96% of care deserts across the US are treated by your providers. So this, this is really critical that you're getting care to people that otherwise may not have access to care. And I think that that's part of the power of telehealth, especially during these times, is that, as you mentioned, you know, people that either geographically or due to, you know, their risk profile either can't or shouldn't be going directly to a healthcare provider in person, they're able to access information and to understand how they're doing. I think that we're seeing more and more the critical role that telehealth provides. And what's interesting to me through all of this, just as a personal observation, is that because of this necessity, the innovation that's coming out of it, this innovation is being increasingly unburdened by regulation, or to put it a different way, public safety regulations in many cases are being set aside, ironically, in the name of public safety. So you've got cases where like Medicare is now paying for telemedicine visits. The HHS is now allowing healthcare providers to work across state lines. And they, they even said that like, despite the fact that Skype and FaceTime don't conform to HIPAA rules, uh, they can be used for telemedicine. And then the CDC released its testing monopoly. So it's now allowing private companies to develop and distribute testing kits. And that's where you can start to see all of this crazy innovation happening in such a short period of time. I find that fascinating. And I think that it speaks a lot about the direction and the the growth trajectory that things like telehealth can go in coming out of this. Absolutely. I, I think there's a few things happening due to COVID. Like the regulatory environment is a huge piece of that. The FCC has also dedicated, I think it was more than $200 million to help providers treat with telehealth technology and Medicare, right? They've started reimbursing for telehealth visits, whereas they previously didn't. So there's the regulatory environment. And then there's also this massive paradigm shift that's happening because of COVID-19. Both physicians and people who were otherwise hesitant to adopt telehealth previously and frankly, many of whom weren't aware of it as well. They're now forced to use it. And and they've yeah. started seeing the benefits of it because of that kind of forcing function. So I think I was reading actually one study, uh, a, a family medical practice had previously before COVID, they were treating 10% of, of their visits through telehealth. And now it's up to 90%, right? Mm-hmm. 
So the shift wow. is is truly massive. Telehealth will never fully replace a doctor's visit, but rather complement it, right? I mean, imagine a world where you can Zoom with your doctor when you have mm-hmm. a nasty virus or a UTI, and you can get a prescription for antibiotics within the hour. Mm-hmm. You know, t- technology offers that level of service and convenience in food, transportation, hospitality, but it hasn't touched one of the most important aspects of our lives, which is our health, right? Mm-hmm. So I think this is is truly the tipping point that telehealth needed for it to become mainstream. Yeah, yeah. I find the Medicare one to be especially interesting because if you think about it, like folks that are on Medicare arguably are the ones that would need telehealth the most, and yet <laughs> they they weren't being reimbursed for it. I think that this is a case where you can start to see, you know, archaic bureaucratic regulation really getting in the way and in this time deregulation playing an important role in actually keeping people safe and again that coming out of the necessity of the environment that we're living in i've just even anecdotally been you know seeing the same thing happening from my end i have been working on the end product that will result from the apple and google partnership for covid-19 contact tracing to help alert people whether they've been at risk to exposure. And it's amazing. I mean, the, you know, huge decisions that would typically take a very, very fast moving company like Google or Apple independently, you know, maybe a couple months to make are now accelerated across a cross company partnership down into the matter of like 30 minutes. Like it makes you question, you know, all of the things that we allow to limit innovation during so-called peacetime when they're evaporated out of necessity and we live in this environment where things happen at a much greater pace and things get done. What things can we learn from that time that we can apply to peacetime, right? What does this say about the normal way that we develop products Mm -hmm. and make decisions and regulate? Quite an interesting time. Yeah, absolutely. Constraints breed innovation, right? But we're kind of in an interesting world where it's not like constraints necessarily, it's actually necessity and, and the urgency of the, the environment that has led to a reduction in constraints. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how we return to an environment post-COVID-19 as well. Yeah. So you're still relatively new at Roe, and this has been a time of extreme change and growth. I think it would also be interesting to talk about your experience of not just growing a product, but also launching a product from zero to one. Back at HubSpot, you worked on something called the Service Hub, which is now one of HubSpot's core products. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience of starting on something totally from scratch within right, a well-developed company with products that were hugely successful and profitable already, and taking this idea and turning it into another one of the pillar products that was so critical to an already existent suite of products. Yeah, absolutely. So this was, I joined the the Service Hub product team probably about three years ago uh, now, which is crazy. Time flies, man. But... When I joined, we knew that we had two core business lines already at HubSpot, right? We had the marketing business line and we had the the sales business line. And we knew we wanted to enter the customer service industry. We wanted to to really penetrate that market. 
But we didn't know what that looked like. We didn't know what the product would be. We had kind of a loose idea of what was already in the market and what features we should build into that product set. But we had no idea beyond that. So we started really defining the who, right? Reaching out to VPs of customer success, of customer support, talking to support reps, anyone who had support or care in in their role, right? And we did really deep dive jobs to be done interviews with them. And for those who might not be familiar with the, the jobs to be done framework, the basic premise or contention is that people hire products to fulfill jobs for them, right? So in the morning when I wake up, I have a job of waking up as efficiently as possible, right? And I can either hire a cup of coffee to perform that job for me, or I could hire a green juice, right? So in that way, thinking about uh, products and, and markets and your customers from jobs to be done perspective, you really shift the way that you think about like competition and how people explore solutions to their problems, which is very much so rooted in acute pain points or problems that they have, as opposed to it being, you know, this generalizable demographic that will always drink coffee in the mornings, right? It, what you drink maybe shifts based on your context and your needs at any given time. So that was a really great framework. There's a good book on this, actually, When Coffee and Kale Compete, to, to the example that I just provided, that I highly <laughs> recommend. Uh, Austin, have you read that, Austin? I haven't read it. It must be a good book, though, because I've been trying to understand Jobs to be Done for like the <laughs> last five years. And not not until now <laughs> do I think I've grasped it. So <laughs> we'll drop the link to that book in the description. <laughs> Okay. Well, I'm glad this could be enlightening for you. <laughs> so the, the questions really that we were asking in some of those interviews is, what do these users want, right? What are their problems? What are they currently doing to solve those problems? Uh, because they have a substitute, right? Whether it's a good substitute or <laughs> a very poor substitute for their problem or, or intermediate solution rather. And what is that like tipping point, right? What is that pushing force that leads them to seek another solution? How do they imagine their life improving with a better solution as well? So really getting into kind of the nitty gritty of answering those questions. And what we did from there is we took the, the learnings from those interviews and that research, and we brought that back to our teams and uh, we started brainstorming solutions. And so we aligned on kind of the core problems that mapped to solutions that we were going to build in, in this product. Yeah. So I find it, really intriguing how you mentioned that in some respects you could use the org chart of a company to serve as like a proxy or an idea base for what type of product you might want to build, right? And I think that this is an advantage that especially B2B teams have. If you're, you know, in one part of HubSpot, we're building a product for the CMO and another part of HubSpot, we're building a product for the CSO. And then now you're looking at like the C, what would that be? CSO, <laughs> customer <laughs> service officer, or the person that is in charge of the customer experience, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so I find it interesting that you kind of use that as a way to start to figure out not only the product that you would build, but also who you would need to talk to. When you did that, were you specifically targeting people from like HubSpot's existing user base or did you step outside of that? How did you know who to talk to? We started with HubSpot's existing customer base because that was kind of the core premise. The idea is we would first target our existing customer base and we would cross sell into that existing Mm -hmm. base, right? That is the low hanging fruit, if you will. Yeah. So we really started by looking at, okay, are there folks in these organizations who are already HubSpot customers that we can chat with and what are their needs and, and talking to those? We did make sure just so that we weren't completely biased or skewed towards HubSpot customers that we did talk to some some folks outside of the HubSpot install base or, or customer base as well, just to keep ourselves honest. But we were primarily like targeting those organizations, right? It, it needed to be a really good fit from a cross-sell perspective, like the product that we were building, right? Yeah. And if you think about it, that's also a way to sort of leverage the inherent strength and perhaps unfair advantage that you have by starting the product within a already successful company and environment, right? Uh, making sure that you can appeal to the customers that you've already managed to attract. That's a critical part of that. Once you knew generally like what product you were going to build and what jobs to be done framework you were working within, did you ever like come to a crossroads where you had to pivot away from that and something that you thought you may have known changed or and you were building something different? Or were you able to hone in on a pretty scoped product easily from the start? A few of the assumptions that we had made did change throughout the course of building the product. And there was two examples, actually, uh, that I can recall that were really like, oh, shit, moments. <laughs> <laughs> We were like, okay, we got to do something here. The first, so, so the team that, that I was on, we were going deep into the, the feedback and surveying tool. And one of the assumptions that we had made in defining our MVP was that our customers would need a, a limited set of, of targeting capabilities in the surveying tool, right? And when we actually got the finished product in the hands of some of our beta users, they couldn't actually send the survey to <laughs> to a list of their target customers. It was partially because of some technical constraints. We were leveraging some new components in, in the product that we were building. But we were like, oh my God, what it, our customers can't send out this survey to their lists, right? We were sliding that, that feature, that functionality in before launch. But that was a, a very scary moment. And I would say one of the things there is we had gotten a prototype in front of users, right? And they had clicked around and, and everyone, you know, from those usability tests that we were running there, they seemed to be using it fine, right? They didn't encounter any difficulties actually sending out the survey, but that's the fundamental difference in having a real working product in front of you and being able to send yeah. a survey, right? And just going through the motions even if we try to replicate real life as much as possible, those are like just some examples of the things that you you can't really foresee until you get something in the hands of users, right? So that, that was a huge learning for us, like getting to user number one at the, the 
fastest speed possible is critical for you to catch what will inevitably be some oversights, right? One thing like in hindsight that we recognize could have helped us there is also more clearly mapping out, okay, here are all of our assumptions for what a user needs when they are creating a survey, when they are sending the survey, when they are viewing results for the survey. And then when new features that we could develop start inevitably creeping in to scope, which they will, constantly referring back to that list of core assumptions and saying, okay, does this meet that list of assumptions? Is this something that we know a user needs in order to create a survey, in order to send a survey, in order to view the results for that survey? And using that as a way to kind of keep yourself honest, because it does get easy to get lost chasing these rabbit holes, right? Yeah, I like the way that you've frame that and stress the importance of that. I think that's also something that designers have to constantly be thinking about is what are the core user goals that we set out to solve for with this Mm -hmm. design and ensuring that if the design expands beyond that scope, there is legitimate justification for that. And I think this especially becomes important in the design review process when people are like looking at the wireframes and the mockups and the prototypes that you're putting together. It can be easy to say, oh, well, I would prefer for it to work this way or what if it did this instead? And it may make sense in the context of the design, but then when you refer back to the original goals that you set out with, it's easy to see that, yes, you may be solving for something useful, but it's not meeting the goals that you set out with in the beginning. And that that is effectively scope creep, right? Whether it be from a product management perspective or from a design perspective. There's a really great book on uh, checklists as well and the power of checklists, Checklist Manifesto. Have you read that one? I haven't read it. <laughs> okay, you've got you've got a full book list after this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's actually written by Surgeon Natal Gawande, and he did a fascinating study where he introduced something so simple into hospitals, which was a checklist. Mm-hmm. And he he did this at hospitals all over the world, right? In in very sophisticated hospitals in in the U.S. and very. Uh, kind of impoverished hospitals in in communities in other parts of the world. And he found that simply by introducing a checklist so that uh, physicians, nurses, uh, and other folks, part of like the, the provider care team, right? They knew at any given time what their role is and what they needed to do for, you know, very common surges they would perform in, in the operating room. And in that way, they prevented very simple mistakes like you know forgetting to wash your hands or scrub properly right forgetting to check the the IV bag in a certain way right so humans are prone to error especially when we have been working a 16 hour shift right so what are those like forcing functions that we can introduce into our lives to help minimize those risks and those natural human errors yeah another thing that really caught my ear that you were talking about was the importance of getting your product in the hands of your first user, building your MVP, and actually observing them use the real product 
in their work environment in this case. What did that look like for you all? Like, were you able to build an MVP and get it in front of users? Or did you have to wait for like some type of beta launch? How did you approach that? No. So we built the the MVP and we were able to source a, a list of beta users from a lot of the folks actually that we had initially spoke with when we were doing kind of the jobs to be done interview research. So a lot of those folks were included in our beta list. And as soon as we were ready with the MVP, we, we looped them into that process and really watched them as they were going through and, and trying to set up the, the product for the first time. So they shared their screen and we were able to you know ask questions and, and prompt them throughout it. But the product was kind of half functioning at the time. You know, we, we were missing kind of critical functionality still, and it was uh, a bit hacky. Like we had to, we had to do a lot in the back end still in order to to fully enable some of the capabilities that folks were looking for. But from that perspective, you know, we just talked to five or, or 10 people, right? That was our first kind of list of folks. And even from that small group, we were able to see immediately those things that we needed to iterate on. So from there, we kind of dropped all of the other priorities and we, we shifted priorities based on what we had learned from the initial beta feedback. We hustled to get to get some of the, the features and, and functionality that I mentioned previously into the product yeah. for launch. So I just want to emphasize a few things here. First is that you had not anywhere near the level of functionality that you knew you needed for the final product. Second was that you had to manually complete some of the tasks on the back end in order for users to be able to do what they wanted. And third was that you were working with a relatively small group of people, right? A handful of people to get this data. And yet still, you were able to get an MVP out there, get important data that helped you to pivot the product and get it to the place where it ultimately needed to be. So this sort of like puts to rest the idea that there is a necessity for some sort of pursuit of perfection before you can start releasing a product and testing it and getting real data on it, right? I like that approach. I think that more people need to experience that to be comfortable in that sort of environment and recognize that launching and iterating, even with a really, really small group, can be very powerful for your product development. But of course, eventually, you did get to a point where you felt that the product was ready. And HubSpot loves to have like huge grand launches of products, right? So what was that like? I think we had that after the the initial beta, we had about uh, six to eight weeks to, to launch. And, and the launch, honestly, the, it was kind of a whirlwind that six to eight weeks leading up to launch because we were iterating on all the, the features, like I mentioned. We had a war room where people were manning social media and monitoring the initial response to that launch. Yeah, that's an exciting time sitting in a war room, launching the product. I think those are some of the most tiring, but also rewarding days in this whole process. Once you launched it, where did you go from there? Like, (laughs) did it go well? Were there things that surprised you that you were learning and, and already changing? What was that like? Yeah, so the the launch went surprisingly well. We had, <laughs> I think, just under like three months, we had blown away our year targets, actually, from an ARR perspective. From a product-specific perspective, users who did get started 
were coming back. They were coming back consistently and they were using the product. So we saw really healthy retention, which was great. We didn't, however, see as strong of, of activation rates. So we didn't see as many folks as, as I thought who were actually getting started, right? So a lot of kind of post-launch for me was scrambling to figure out, okay, great, we've gotten, we've gotten this initial subset of users who are, are clearly finding value in the product. Let me talk to them and, and let, me, let me hear more about what value they found in the product, you know, what, if they had a magic wand, what they wish they could improve, just kind of understanding how are people actually using this. A bit of context for folks that are not familiar with how software conversions work in the B2B space. HubSpot, for example, has a very high friction conversion and onboarding process. And because of this, they also have a pretty intensive activation bar, basically, that every product has to meet. So in order to flip the flag that says that a user is an activated customer of the product, multiple things need to happen, which the company and the product team have determined will thus properly bring the user into the fold, but also ensure that they have the highest likelihood of being successful and retaining. So a lot of the goals that we would think about when we were designing the onboarding process were not just focused on like converting the user and getting them into the product, but also ensuring that they would be successful. And if you think about it, those, those are two related, but extremely different in terms of level of difficulty things to accomplish. So when you think about growth and actually getting somebody to activate inside of a product re and retain inside of that product, you realize that what you're, you're really talking about is not just like growth in terms of raw numbers, but you're thinking about healthy and sustainable growth. So how did you approach that when you were going through this process of figuring out how you can better get people to activate into the product and still grow the product at the numbers that you were projecting. Yeah. So, you know, it was part of the research really in terms of uh, talking to the users that went to start a, a survey, for example, but they didn't publish it or, you know, they published it and they didn't actually start receiving responses on it. It was talking to those people and really identifying, okay, what were those blockers? What were those hesitations or points of doubt that uh, prevented them from, from really taking that next step? And pairing that with what we were seeing in the, the funnel metrics as well, right? So what are the largest drop-off points that we see? Where are people abandoning? And one of the insights that we gleaned is a lot of our users were hesitant to put our surveys live, for example, because they wanted a review almost, right? They were nervous about sending something out immediately to their entire customer base. And so they wanted to, to publish the survey, but they wanted to, to maybe see what it looks like before they send it to all 2,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 of their customers. So one of the things that we did really quickly to to try to account for that hesitation and that doubt was build in a, a test survey send into the setup functionality so that we can 
hopefully get users to see that value uh, and reduce the hesitation that they would have in actually publishing. It is so. So I think, like t- to your question around balancing growth and like healthy growth in a way, right? How do we get folks not just onboarded or set up for success with each kind of individual product that we have, but how do we get them set up for success as a whole, right? Which is it's an entirely different framing of a question as well. And that becomes much more challenging, right? Because what does healthy look like? What are the minimum set of actions or steps that a user has to perform in order for them to be a healthy retaining member? And ultimately, like, that is the most important question because growth is not growth if you're losing uh, 70% of, of every member that activates or that you acquire, right? That is not uh, sustaining growth. So we pursue like genuine, meaningful, sustaining growth. And in order to do that, you need to understand what are the minimum set of things that your user does need to perform or take in order to set them up um, to become a healthy retaining member. And once you identify those things, then it's an, it's an exercise in, okay, well, how do we make this as easy as possible, right? And there's a few like tactics that we have to get them to take those actions. And there's product-led and then there's human-led, right? And the human-led is that we've got customer success managers at HubSpot who are able to provide human-led onboarding to our customers to help ensure that they take those actions and to walk them through the product. Uh, and that's complemented by the product-led onboarding and activation sequence of steps, right? Yeah. I really like your points about healthy, sustained growth. This is something that Matt Rowe used to talk about a lot, specifically in relation to the term growth hacking and how this is kind of at odds with the idea of sustained long-term healthy growth. It's actually quite difficult to hack your way to healthy growth because more often than not, the growth in the long-term of your product, the retention of customers in your product relies on the genuine success of those customers within your product. So it's hard to hack that. Ultimately, the short-term tactics can help you to get those people into the funnel, but there's really no way around figuring out and going through that intensive process of determining how you're going to help those people be successful once they're in your funnel and they're in your product. And I think that your use of human and product-led onboarding is quite a nice formula for this. I know that we do similar things at HubSpot during the sales process. We're actually a significant part of what was done in the early stages with qualifying leads was disqualifying them, identifying the leads or the potential users that weren't fully committed to the product or maybe wouldn't be a good fit for the product and thus might not be successful for it. Because with a big B2B suite of tools like what HubSpot has built, it actually takes quite a lot of time for the company to recuperate the cost of acquisition for a user, especially a large enterprise. So it may take you six 
months, a year before you've earned enough revenue from that customer to pay for what it costs to acquire them. So a critical part of it is actually just ensuring that you're getting the right customers, not as many customers as possible, the right customers, and ensuring that they're successful and that they are going to retain. And if they're successful in your product, you'll be successful because they'll retain and they'll continue paying for your product. Otherwise, it's not going to work out quite as well. And I think that that's really what sustainable, healthy growth is, is ensuring the success of the people that are using your product. It can be quite unintuitive in terms of growth hacking, but it's actually pretty obvious when you take a step back and you think about what really makes a product useful and successful for its customers. It's helping them to complete the job that they want to be done for real. Right. Absolutely. I think uh, a great example of that, which is very buzzy and and probably cliche now in in tech, but it's superhuman, right? Uh, Superhuman had and it still does actually an entirely human led onboarding. It's hugely friction filled process. I actually went through it just out of curiosity, which I I really did like because I don't want to get on the phone with someone and and talk to them about my email habits. I barely know how to describe my email habits to myself, but that's a great example of how they are still performing reverse Pinocchio effect on growing their product, which is you start with humans and then you work backwards and and you figure out how you automate it. Yeah, you're creating a really, really organic and detailed data pipeline for your product development, right? It's very similar to using sales call recordings or support call recordings or support tickets as ways to identify opportunities in your product and things that you should build in the same way, understanding what's working and clicking for people during onboarding and what's not where they're getting hung up qualitatively can be very useful. Absolutely. Well, Cambria, this has been great. Thank you for coming on the show. I hate to say that we're we're out of time. I've actually kept you longer than I was supposed to. So if folks want to continue the conversation with you and learn more about what it takes to bring a product from an idea to something that's been launched and is growing at a healthy, sustainable, albeit fast rate, what are the best ways for them to get in touch with you? I would say go to my website, uh, cambriadavies.com. I've got all forms of contact information on there. So depending on what medium you prefer, whether it's messenger or text or email, all of it kind of is is linked out there. So I've got some writing featured on there as well with a little more details into some of the topics that we covered today. And I'm happy to, to chat in more depth if anyone wants to have a call. Fantastic. I'll drop all of those links in the description. It was great having you here. I really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. Thanks, Austin.